Welcome to WVU Marketing Horizons, hosted by Ruth Stevens and Cindy Greenboss. We are grateful to WVU, who offers renowned online master's degree programs in marketing communications. And this series is presented by the Reed College of Media as part of their ongoing marketing series. Thank you for joining us today. Cindy, I am so happy to be able to bring Nancy Harhut in to talk with us about behavioral science. It's a pretty new field, but it has really strong implications for marketing. And I know that you and I both know Nancy through the direct marketing world. Yes. And I'm, I'm sure we both are big fans of hers. Nancy is based in Boston and she's been the chief creative officer at a bunch of agencies. Now she's at HBT Marketing where she's chief creative officer and co-founder. She does a lot of speaking and training. I have heard her just recently and was really awed. And she started her career as a copywriter. So no surprise, this area of behavioral science is really interesting for her because she's trying to figure out how to persuade her audiences and understand what's going on in their minds and what they do. So that's how you get better response, right? More engagement from audiences. So shall we bring her in? Absolutely. Um, I think we're going to learn a lot from Nancy. And I I remember when you and I were in Boston together at a conference and and had the pleasure of of hearing Nancy. So it's been a while since we visited. Let's ask Nancy to come in. So Nancy, great to have you. And I think Cindy's going to lead off with our first question. Well, you know, when I heard that Nancy was going to join us, talking about behavioral science, neuromarketing, decision science. The first thing that comes to mind is this sounds rather like sci-fi, you know, you can plug something into your brain. It's, uh, <laughs> um, so Nancy, you know, clear this up for me. Uh, maybe I'm the one who's uh, taking it a little too far. What does it really mean? Sure, Cindy. That's a that's a great question. And first of all, thank you to you and Ruth for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here, and uh, I love to talk about behavioral science. So, uh, so in a nutshell, really, it's the study of how people behave, how people make decisions. And as a marketer, that's something that really interests me because at the at the core of what we do, we have to get people to make decisions, whether it's the decision to you know, read our blog post or open our email or refer a friend or buy our product or or buy our product again. There's always a series of decisions that are, you know, on a marketer's plate and anything that we can do to get people to make the decisions that we want them to make is a good thing. And social scientists have studied how people make decisions and they've discovered that there are a lot of shortcuts that people just automatically default to. And so as marketers, if we start to use those automatic shortcuts, if we trigger them in our strategies, and in our creative, we get an increase in our engagement and our response rate. And, uh, and that's why I love behavioral science so much, at least that end of behavioral science. Oh, interesting. So we're seeking to trigger those default behaviors. So where do you see some of the applications in marketing and marketing communications, Nancy? 
Sure, there there are a lot of them. You know, there are some that are on the research side, and that's that's not my end of the business. But there's a lot of uh, neuroscience that's being used in research to figure out what people are thinking and what they respond to. My end of of the business is more on the creative side. So the research I do is in market, and what I like to do is use behavioral science in in strategies and in creative executions to increase the likelihood people are going to do what they want you know, what, what we want them to do. So uh, for example, one thing you could think about using is the idea of framing. And there was an interesting study that was reported in um, the Journal of Consumer Research where people had to make a decision about how to let their customers know that there's gonna be a shipping fee. And so the person had to either say it was gonna be a $5 fee or frame it as a small $5 fee. They ran, you know, the, the in-market test and they found out that framing it as a small $5 fee got them a, got them a significant increase in sales, like a 20% lift in sales. So that's the, you know, I didn't do that study. I didn't write that copy, but that's the area that I, I work in. And it's figuring out how to phrase things, which words to choose, uh, how to frame things, what order to put things in to get people to engage and respond. So another thing about pricing is uh, there was a great study that came out of UConn and Clark University. And what they found was, you know, in marketing, we have our original price and then we have our sales price. And very often what we do is we make that sales price as big as possible because we don't want people to miss it. But UConn researchers and Clark University researchers found that if you express the sales price in a smaller font size than the original price, people actually perceive it to be a smaller, lower price because it takes up less physical space. And the, the way prices are presented, the amount of space they take up, where they appear on a page, it's all known as magnitude encoding process. And, and the, our perception of prices is definitely influenced by how much space they take up, the size that they are. So actually a, a smaller typeface for a sales price can make people think it's, it's literally a lower, smaller price. That's amazing. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? You know, and again, kind of counterintuitive for us as marketers, because we're like, why would we, why would we make it small? But one of my clients ran the, the actual test. It was the only thing they changed on one of their controls and they saw a double digit lift in response, which made me oh. very happy. I know. Oh. That's amazing. Mm. I know I've heard that um, we are more likely to act to uh, protect ourselves from risk or do I have this backwards? We are more likely to take an action if we feel at risk than we are if we feel comfortable. Is that part of what you're looking at too? To make people feel motivated to act versus um, engage in kind of like inertia? Yes, that's a, that's a great point. There's something that social scientists have identified called loss aversion, and it almost is a little counter, you know, counterintuitive to us as marketers, because in marketing, we're all about the benefits, the gains, the advantages, the wonderful things that will happen if you just do what I'm asking you to do, right? If you just buy my product or service, if you just do business with my company. And as marketers, we know that benefits work, so we would never want to walk away from them. But social scientists have identified loss aversion. They found that people are twice as motivated to avoid the pain of loss as they are to achieve the pleasure of gain. So in marketing, we're all about the pleasure of gain, but sometimes some well uh, placed loss aversion is the way to go. You know, letting people know the pain they may be in if they don't do 
what we ask them to do, you know, or the the uh, the difficulties that they can avoid if they do do what we ask them to do. So that idea of avoiding pain is a very powerful motivator and can actually motivate people more than achieving something. Do you have to, Nancy, be a, a, a data scientist or, or some sort of scientist in order to understand this stuff and be uh, educated in how to use it appropriately? So, you know, you would you would think maybe at face value you do like, oh, it's called behavioral science. So it certainly sounds like you need to have a, a science degree, but I don't. And a lot of people I know in marketing that use these principles also don't. What we do is we benefit from the research done by the behavioral scientists, behavioral economists, the people who hold those degrees, we just pluck what is most appropriate for us in marketing. And we combine that with uh, with our marketing best practices and we, we use the principles. So while we don't have to have degrees in behavioral science, we're still able to benefit from the advantages that behavioral science brings to marketing. So what you're trying to do or what we're trying to do is psych out people's motivations and how they're going to react and try to stimulate them with to harness that that trigger that we've learned about. Doesn't that creep people out when we talk about this? It, are there ethical considerations that we should take into account, or maybe just not talk about it? <laughs> I hear that question a lot. It's like, all right, if you can use these triggers to to increase engagement and response, is that is that really ethical? Is that the thing to do? And and the truth is, you know, let's step back and say, as marketers, we absolutely should be ethical. We have a responsibility to be fair to our customers, to treat them with respect, to to not mislead them or, or lie to them. But also, as marketers, we have a an obligation to ourselves and to the companies that we work for to try to get the highest return on investment. And so, I'm I'm not a sports fan, but I, I liken it to if if I were a pitcher and I I took the pitching mound and. I knew that the batter that was coming up next was very likely to bunt, I would probably adjust my throw in order to accommodate that. So if we know that people are, you know, more likely to choose the middle option, well, maybe that means that we want to put the, you know, the thing that we most want to sell in the middle. Uh, if we know that people are twice as likely to respond to the word free as they are to the word complimentary in a subject line, well, let's use the word free in the subject line. So we want to treat people with respect. We, we, you know, we don't want to be irresponsible using these techniques, but I like to think of it as helping people make decisions that they would like to make. So are these behavioral science principles that have been uncovered and written about by a lot of a lot of people, especially these days. I'm seeing books on this coming out all the time. Are they mostly based on the kind of direct marketing split testing that we've all done for many decades? Or are they done in labs? Are they observational? Where where does this insight come from, Nancy? There's a lot of research out there, and some of it is done in labs. Some of it is done uh, putting people to into fMRI machines, flashing different words in front of their faces, seeing what parts of their brains light up. Some of it is done in market. So there's a there's a variety. Uh, sometimes people are doing uh, you know eye tracking studies or heat mapping studies to see where your eye goes. So there's a lot of research that's out there, and. As a direct marketer who's been in this business for a number of years now, I find that the the behavioral science kind of drops into two different buckets. There are things that behavioral scientists talk about, and I say, ah, 
that's something that I know from, you know, my years in the business because I've tested my way into it or because intuitively, you know, it, it seemed to make sense. And, and so that's why I did it. And then there are these other things that I learned from behavioral science. And I think, wow, that's something I do want to try because that would have never have occurred to me. I have no idea that, that people behave in that manner or that that's such a big motivator. So let me see where I can apply that in my marketing programs and let's see if I can get a lift based on it. Neat. Can you give us an example of one of those ones that came from outside our, uh, the direct marketing world? Yeah. Um, so there's a behavioral science principle called autonomy bias. And it basically means that people have this uh, hardwired, deep-seated, innate need to, to feel that we're in control of ourselves and in our, in our environments. And so there was a researcher named Chris Carpenter, and he really dug into this notion of autonomy bias. And, and he did a lot of research specifically into something known as the BYAF technique, which is uh, stands for but you are free, BYAF, but you are free. And what he found was, you know, we can tell people what we want them to do. We can ask them to do it. But if we then remind them that you are free to choose, but you're free to choose, but it's up to you, but the choice is yours, that just increases by, by I think, double uh, the likelihood that someone will do what you want them to do. So it's interesting because from a, a marketing perspective, we'd have a strong call to action, but it wouldn't necessarily have occurred to me at least to say, but of course, you know, you're free to choose. You don't have to, in other words, but we'd like you to. And yet uh, his research or his deep dive into the research of the BYF, BYAF technique finds that it's incredibly um, effective. Have you tested it? Yes, I've actually started to work it into some of the copy that I do, uh, but I have not done an isolated head-to-head test. So, uh, you know, that, that, that's on the agenda, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, on a light note, I thought you were going to say BYOB, and I am a huge advocate <laughs> of the BYOB strategy. <laughs> a time-honored, effective <laughs> secret of direct marketing, right, Cindy? You bet. But, you know, this is, when you think about it, any parent knows this is a common sense approach as we try to get our children to do things that if you tell them to do it, they won't do it. If you either make it their idea or they think they're doing something you don't want them to do, they will (laughs) jump in and do it right away. Like if you want them to make their bed, oh God, I hope you don't make your bed today, right? And then of course they want to make their bed. But this idea about, well, this is a suggestion, but you know, it's it's up to you. I love this idea that, but you're free to choose. It just really is interesting as a marketer because our call to actions, we always say, should be so firm, sense of urgency, and are and clear. Do this now, and this is what benefit you achieve. Ask you for do. the order. Yes. Yeah. So this yeah. is kind of counterintuitive, Nancy. So fast. Maybe there's something called rebellion bias. But maybe there is, you know, uh, well, there, there's something actually called psychological reactance theory, where if you, you know, you, uh, if you tell someone one thing, they're going to react against it. If you try to take something away from them, they're going to react against it by trying to get it back. People have signed up to read your e-newsletter and then they're not opening it. They're not opening it. And you think to yourself, you know, 
what, what can I possibly say to them to get them to open it? You might want to send them an email saying, look, you don't seem to be as interested in the email. I know you signed up for it, but um, maybe things have changed. So we're going to take you off the list. And in some cases, people will be like, that's great. But in other cases, people are going to be like, oh, no, you don't. I signed up for that list. You're not taking me off that list. You know, if, if I have to start opening your emails, then that's what I'm going to do because I'm I'm staying on that list. So there's this, you know, rebellion, you know, principle or, or psychological reactance theory. And then, Cindy, you were talking about calls to action and, you know, firm and, and discreet and, and uh, you know, powerful. There was a copywriter named Colleen Zott who ended her direct response TV commercial with, uh, instead of saying operators are waiting, please call now, she changed it to if operators are busy, please call again. And you would say to yourself, why would you suggest that there's going to be friction? Why would you, you know, we're trying so hard to get you to call us. Why would you suggest that, well, there might be a busy signal, but she was leveraging something known as social proof. When people aren't sure of what to do, they look to others, they follow their lead. So you're watching TV, you see the TV spot come on and you hear that if the line might be busy when you call, you think, wow, I guess a lot of people like me are calling. Maybe I should too. I get that. Wow. It really reminds me of my early career in direct marketing, where we would test some hypothesis, somebody's good idea of how to increase response. And I often was predicting the wrong outcome. I, I was really, uh, I was proved wrong many, many times. And we would then go back and try to explain why so that we could internalize and understand the logic behind people's behavior. And sometimes they, it was explainable and sometimes it just sort of, uh, we, we couldn't, couldn't really explain it. Yeah, people are complex and uh, the, the reasons we do what we do are sometimes very mysterious. There's a behavioral economist named Dan Ariely who wrote a book called Predictably Irrational and he talks about the fact that we don't always make the best decisions like a, a pure economist would look at them and say that just isn't optimal for you and yet you know, we make these decisions and we make them over and over again in the same way. Sometimes they're, you know, they defy logic, if you will, but people are people. So we all we yeah. can do is, is test and keep optimizing and learning. I think well, he and other writers have done a great service in helping economists understand the irrationality of people. Yes. Uh, that brings me to back to the science. We are always looking to um, save us as best as we can from lady chance, right? We're looking at confidence levels and to what extent can we control for chance? Because not only are we all, always not that predictable, but there is that chance that can um, impact our ability to predict the future. Um, how do you look at confidence levels and predictability in behavioral science? How do I look at confidence levels and predictability in behavioral science? So I, I believe in behavioral science. And so I believe that when I'm leveraging one of the principles, when I'm adding it to my creative executions, that it's it's going to work for a lot of people. I don't think that there's any silver bullet. I don't think there's there's anything that's going to make someone who doesn't want to do something do it. I don't think that there's anything that's going to make everybody who might be interested in something buy that, that particular thing. But when I use behavioral science, I believe that for a lot of my target, it's, it's going to work. And then of course, you know, the proof is in the results we get from our email campaign or our direct mail campaign or our integrated campaign. We, you know, we, we look at all the, uh, the KPIs and, and we measure against our, our benchmarks and against our 
previous results and and we see if if what we'd hoped is is what in fact we're getting it where do you think this stuff is going nancy is there something over the horizon that we can look forward to out of behavioral science you know, Ruth, I think, um, you know, you mentioned there are more and more books or, or articles that you're reading. I think that there's a growing adoption of behavioral science across the board, you know, certainly in marketing, but also in education and in healthcare, a, a number of different industries. But I think for us in, in marketing, we're going to see a, a growing adoption. We, it wouldn't surprise me if we start to see behavioral scientists enter the C-suite, you know, chief behavioral scientist or chief behavioral science officer. Wow. Um, I, I think we're going to I don't think we're too far away from that because uh, I think a lot of the blue chip companies are already adding behavioral science, you know, the behavioral science discipline to their arsenal. So I don't think it's going to be too far away bef- before we see that elevated to the C-suite. And I, I think that there's going to be this growing coordination between data science and behavioral science. You know, data science is a well-recognized field. Behavioral science is more of an emerging field. And I think the two are going to get more closely entwined in order to help marketers even more. Very interesting think this is a, a way to really marry the inexplicable complexity of human behavior with the hard science of data. It's exciting. Absolutely. And as we're looking at uh, ways in which we can use this, I think what comes to mind is a very practical way, Nancy, I believe you have um, shared in some of your talks and, and articles, uh, it is using it in pricing strategies, right? So how you shared, you know, the small versus the, the, the large and, and the way that you position something, but looking at this for a price elasticity or price acceptance, you've written some articles about this. And I think, Ruth, isn't there a way that we can have our listeners learn more about it if they're interested? Yeah, one of my favorites was her article from last year and for the Content Marketing Institute. So we'll make sure that a link to that article appears in our blog associated with this podcast. So with that, I think we've run out of time, but let's thank Nancy for joining us today and bringing us up to date and thinking about where all these important new methods in marketing are going to go. You bet. Thank you, Nancy. I'm going to think about this now in a different way. Well, Loss thank you both. aversion. <laughs> Loss exactly. aversion, right? Yeah, think about loss aversion and social proof and autonomy bias and, and lots of other, you know, human, beho- human behavior motivators. Thank you both so much. It's been wonderful uh, sharing this time with you. Thank you for inviting me. And um, I wish you both uh, a great rest of the day. Thank you, Nancy. Great to have you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Wasn't that interesting, Cindy? I learned a really wonderful new acronym that I can use to impress my friends, BYAF. You are free. I know you wanted it to be BYOB, sorry. But what a neat concept that you open the door to people's making a choice, which is so counter to everything we've learned in direct marketing over the years, eliminate choice, eliminate friction, make it easy to take the action you want them to take. Fascinating, huh? It is. And it did run contrary to what I so often look at doing in my creative 
And, you know, of course, Nancy, being the creative expert here and the subject matter expert, I'm going to have to rethink this because whenever I look at the copy that comes over, I'm looking for the persuasion in the ad copy or the persuasion in the response copy, like you said, create a sense of urgency, tell them what to do, ask for the order. And now we're saying, but you don't have to take that action. Yeah. And then another counterintuitive thing that I'm always looking for is benefits. Now she said, we have to, we still have to state the benefits, but the idea that loss aversion is a, such a powerful motivator, twice as effective as the pleasure of the prospect of, of gain. gain, the fear of loss is twice as powerful as mm -hmm. the expectation of, of gain. And that We've reminds been... me of, sorry, that reminds me of a principle that Bob Hacker used to talk about. He, he talked about fear and greed a lot as two important copy platforms in, in consumer direct marketing. So it's sort of reminiscence of reminiscent of that. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing this a lot right now with COVID. Uh, we're seeing a decrease in loyalty and we're seeing an increase in consumers' willingness to change and to churn and to move from relationships they've had for a long time to trying new things because of the sense of fear that has a lot of people are feeling over this time. And um, the perception is that uh, this is a great time to steal market share because consumers right. are willing to take that quote risk because of the fear, as opposed to I'm comfortable, I could achieve gain. People are not in a gain feeling mood right and that ties in nicely with the BYAF concept too, doesn't it? That if people are unsettled and uh, upset with the pandemic or other factors, telling them you're free to do what you want, can I can see that being a powerful kind of um, empowerment method of stimulating a response. I completely agree with you. That was an interesting observation. The but then there were came to mind for me something we already know a lot about, but it is a good reminder that there is science behind social proof. Right, testimonials, right? That mm -hmm. we are we find so effective in business to business marketing and the uh, the whole influencer thing on social media is is, is uh, under underpinned by that concept, I think. There is another concept that we use a lot called pre-attentive processing in insight analysis. We look at assets, whether it, again, in creative, when you're assessing what something looks like before, before you present it to a recipient, whether it's an ad, it could be a form, it could be any kind of um, 
asset you put in front of them that says, what does the eye, you know, the heat mapping, where does your eye go in the first three to five seconds? We know that really well, right? But what we're also seeing is that we cognitive retention is based on the order and sequence in which we present concepts, both graphics and copy. Interesting. I wonder if Nancy addresses that at all in some of the work she does. We may need to, I may need to follow up with her on that and see where she thinks the science of cognitive um, pre-attentive processing is going as part of behavior science. Maybe she's working on a book. We didn't ask her. Another concept that she actually opened with that I really loved was reminding us that decisions are are what we're trying to harness here, that people make a series of decisions before they respond to us or take whatever action we're looking for. And that it's human nature to make that decision as quickly and easily as possible in your brain. So everyone has these shortcuts like defaults and it's our job to try to trigger them to fall back on those shortcuts so that they'll get uh, fall into our arms more quickly. I think that's a, a neat way to think about the, the way a marketer has to approach the problem of persuasion. Yes, and that is um, a topic we spoke about with one of our previous guests when we talked about the micro yes and how Indeed. we wanted to move people along from um, either inertia to taking an action and taking multiple small actions as they move them through the sales funnel. I think we talked to Kuhn DeWitt about that. We did, yeah. It's probably gonna come up again and again. And interesting that the, the science of understanding hacking human behavior is contributing to our understanding of these ideas so that they can be applied in a variety of of places and through a variety of technologies like chatbots that we discussed with with Kuhn. Wasn't it fascinating her comments around the C-suite? Indeed. The idea that behavioral science is emerging as a discipline and people are going to probably be getting degrees in it. Um, I'm, I can imagine maybe, Cindy, you should develop a course on the subject for West Virginia University, how about? And, and that companies are recognizing the power of this stuff and giving people titles and, and job descriptions around it. And I also was thrilled that companies seem to be understanding that data science and behavioral science can work together for, for greater results. Get the, you know, the touchy feely people Mm -hmm. with the hard data people (laughs) together (laughs) and um, improve our marketing results overall. 
It, it reminds me of the arguments I used to have um, being the data gal uh, on qualitative versus quantitative research. You know, and being the quant gal, I was always arguing that qualitative research has no place in research, right? And I humbly <laughs> learned how wrong I was because um, you can introduce bias equally in quantitative research as you can in qualitative research. And qualitative research has such an important place in our understanding. And so you've got qualitative research and behavioral science, and then you have data science and quantitative research. And so it's, you know, it, we need both. We need right. all four. Isn't that it helpful for a, a mark, a person who's just entering the marketing field to realize that there is room for all kinds of skills and predispositions and personality types in the world of marketing. We need, we need everybody. Yes, which gets us to, with all we heard today in Nancy's quick 20 minutes with us, there's so much takeaway from it. Um, we've always said we want to distill things down to our three little piggies, our three takeaways. Exactly. This is going to be a tough one, Ruth. How are we going to get it down to only three takeaways from our conversation today? Well, I think pretty clearly that one of them should be this point about buying decisions being made in a series of small elements and that if we break it down, we can influence and motivate those various smaller decisions to move prospects in our direction. Absolutely. Uh, I want to reemphasize that B-Y-A-F. I can't help it because, yes, <laughs> I, I am thinking I'm going to bring my own three, but um, giving people the option to say, but it's up to you as a different way of presenting an offer or a message was um, eye-opening. And I think that this would be something we're testing. I would want to test it. In fact, I would say that maybe the conclusion is that many of the assumptions that we as marketers and as human beings tend to make need testing. <laughs> that We've learned today about the power of loss aversion which was pretty counterintuitive to all of our marketing training, right? And so maybe the, the larger piggy here is that we all have to be reconfirming the lessons that we've learned or we think we've learned and um, be open to new ideas. I agree, Ruth. This has been a really interesting time we spent today. Always interesting chatting with you and a really wonderful conversation with Nancy. So I hope that uh, we'll have some good takeaways and, and I'm going to chew on this one. After well, I think the, the third one is, is pretty clearly the point that behavioral science is emerging as a standalone discipline and yep. that offers career opportunities and exciting new developments as it integrates with data science for, for better marketing overall. Once again, it's another reason why it's so exciting to be in the marketing field today. Here, here. Thank you, Cindy. Have a nice day. 
You've been listening to WVU Marketing Horizons, hosted by Ruth Stevens and Cindy Greenglass. Please be sure to visit go.wvu.edu slash mctoday to view our upcoming conversations, listen to previous discussions, and subscribe to receive updates.